It's Tuesday, October 30th, 2018, and welcome to episode 217 of Tech Talk for Teachers. I'm Tom Grissom. I'm Brian Poulter. It's Halloween. <laughs> Don't even have to add the sound it's, effect. It's Halloween Eve. Oh, I'm sorry. Halloween Eve, yes. So, uh, this episode, uh, first of all, welcome to Tech Talk for Teachers, the show about teaching and learning with technology. And we have Brian Poulter back in the studio with us uh, this time. To, uh, let's see, what are we going to talk about today? I'm so sorry I'm back. I just think, <laughs> I just imagine people turning off all over the internet. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to be talking about strangers, I guess, today. Yes, yeah, so how to bring strangers into your classroom to teach your class for you. Okay, Boy, there's, so there's so many questions just popping up. Internet into safety heads. and everything, <laughs> yes, uh, coming up. But this is kind of a good type of stranger out yeah. there. So we'll explain a little bit more uh, in a little bit. And then, uh, of course, we'll have our technology, technology picks of the week, uh, a couple of practical applications out there, and some really cutting edge technology as well. So we'll go ahead and leave it there and get started. And here we go. Up first today, we have Brian Poulter back in the studio, and this time we're going to talk a little bit about some projects. We're a little bit uh, over halfway this, from the semester, right? We've passed midterms. We're a week 11. We're three quarters of the way. Oh, through, okay. <laughs> all right. I'm not teaching a class now, so I don't have all the Obviously. weeks in my head. Uh, we just finished with our EdTPA teacher licensure, so my life has been revolving around that and uh, some of the high-stakes testing that we've been doing with our students. So we just submitted all of those, and now then we're patiently waiting for results. Uh-oh. So uh, everything went really well. Uh, I'm sure a, it did. We had a, a big crop of, of student teachers coming in, but that's always a little bit of a stressful time getting everybody to do their submissions. But we've made it through that, and we're in week 11 now. Yes. So week 11, we are oh, probably shoulder deep, I guess, in, in all of the uh, things academia. academia. And uh, one of the things that we always do, and you and I always, always have these conversations, is finding some of the real-world, real-life type applications and you know, turning our, our students loose with that. So you had shared with me some time ago an, an article that you actually had published out there. So just explain a little bit. I guess set it up. You are a photojournalist. Yes. Teaching in our journalism department. So that is just ripe for all kinds of special projects and things, turning students loose. So uh, why don't you go ahead and share just a little bit of the overview of the article. We will link a, uh, a link to this PDF file out there in the show notes. So, Well, th this all actually goes back to, I'll, I'll get there eventually, a uh, experience I had when I was in high school, when I was taking physics. And I had a, a great, great teacher who was way overqualified to be teaching high school physics, but he loved it. And uh, that spilled over. But, uh, you know, so when we were studying thrust and drag and all that, we went out on the football field and fired rockets off into the air. And I think we snuck two large engines in some of them because they went awful darn high. But I'm a big fan of whenever you can relate what you're teaching to the outside world, I think you literally make it come alive for the students. You know, obviously physics relates to the outside world, but you got to make that connection for students. So with that in mind, there is a wildly popular photo blog by Stanton is his last name. Brandon Stanton. I can never remember his name, and my students make fun of me for that. And he publishes this blog on Facebook and on its own website called The Humans of New York, and it's on Twitter and it's on uh, all the social media. And essentially what he is, is it, or 
happened to him was he, by his own admission, was a unsuccessful bonds tra- bond trader in, in New York. And he said, what do I do now? I don't have a job. And he moved to New York and started photographing people and interviewing them. And, and what's so wonder about, wonderful about his work is his photographs are really strong, even though he claims not to be a photojournalist. He has arguably the best-selling photo book out the last couple of years. But his ability to have these street interviews in New York City, which is not known as the most friendly place in the world, although that, I find that not, that not necessarily to be true, and just how quickly he can have these conversations with people in which they tell them their most intimate secrets to the stranger who is photographing them. And so with that in mind, I said, well, that's exactly what journalism and photojournalist students need to do, learn how to make great photographs but write great captions. So luckily he has been interviewed numerous places, including some prestigious uh, universities in Europe. And so what I did, I said, said to my class, let's watch these. Let's figure out what his technique is, what's his lack of a better word is game when he goes up to people and how does he do this and not that they can do it exactly the way he does it but we can adapt to their style we, we, we broke it down intellectually into what are the things that he does what how does he build his questions to get information and we watch these videos and we compare our work to his work and they had to take several of his photographs and explain to me photographically composition mood and all kinds of other things why they worked and it did several things. It made them sit down and intellectualize a process by which they want to accomplish this goal, learn from someone who's very, very good at it, pick his brain without ever meeting him. That's the name of the article, by the way, is The Stranger Teaching My Class. Um, and it makes it hyper real for them because now they're going to go out and do these sort of things. And part of the class is they publish, they have to do this themselves, go up to strangers and figure out how they're going to pull this off, and then they publish five of these on um, Portrait AAU website. And the beauty of the assignment is, while we worked out in class about how, what the approach is, I just give some assignment, and it's up to them to go do it outside of class. And I grade it, and we discuss it. So they're doing this bit of work, but once you get it started, they're off on their own doing it. And uh, it doesn't take up a lot of class time, and, and, and they seem to really, really, really like it. So... Um, it's part of the idea that I've always had that if you can bring something from the outside immediately into your classroom and then make it and then them send them back out of the classroom to apply this thing that you're uh, dissecting, that's where some of the best teaching takes place. Mm-hmm. The, sort of the other idea that I have is if I say five things that are correct, they won't necessarily believe me. But if I get someone to come into my classroom, a guest lecturer from more than 25 miles away, and say exactly the same thing, they look at me like, you right. weren't making this up, were you? Right. And so it's the you got to get confirmation. It's a way of getting confirmation for what you're teaching is, in fact, the truth. Yeah. The old story of profit in your own land type. Yeah. 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 So in, in studying these photographs, and do they come away with it? I take it he has a certain style if you recognize, or is he more eclectic than that? He does have a certain style. I personally think that sometimes he's more effective using sort of one style versus another style. Some of his photographs I like very much. Some of them sometimes I'm like, you're just not up to your own standards. And the students come to that same conclusion too. However, they will like different photographs than what I will like. And I'm not trying to teach them the way Brian Poulter sees the world, but I'm trying to teach them to intellectualize a process by which they're going to see the world and present information. And, you know, 
this is a required course in the journalism curriculum. It's, we have a full journalism minor, but uh, anyone can take this class. And really what I sell them when I'm trying to sell them on why they want to study photojournalism, if not just journalism, is this is what everybody does. You go out, if you're a lawyer, you research information, you construct it into a narrative, and you present it to a jury. If you're a doctor, you're researching on people, trying to construct a story on what's going on, and come up with the cure, which is, in fact, your narrative of, of what should be done. It's, it's that process of research and then being able to explain it, and more importantly, for me as a photojournalist, show it. I read, a, I read a research somewhere that says 90% of everything you learn has a visual component to it. I guess unless you're listening to music and you're trying to play by ear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what I really worry about is one of the visual people within journalism is constructing a narrative that has that visual element that makes it come alive. Just as I attempt to make them analyze the sky and see it in the outside world, as journalism students, I want them to show people stuff, just not tell them stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that same principle is, applies both to teaching and to photojournalism. Don't just tell me, show me, and they get create and more of an experience you can create for me. The more different notes you're hitting, yeah. you're trying to pr produce this chord called learning. You know, the more yeah. way you can attack it. Yeah, in teaching, we have you know this concept called the learning curve, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you've seen this over and over again in your students because once you turn those students onto an idea, seeing the composition or whatever uh, in that particular photograph, or in my case, whenever I teach how to make you know educational videos and things, I say you know start studying other things, start looking at a commercial, you know, look at the number of cutaways, and it's just boom, boom, boom. It's just our attention spans just taken from one thing to another, or you know in a drawing series or something like that just some of those camera angles things that you never pay attention to unless you, you know your attention is drawn to it and then you're like fascinated it's like I can't watch a TV show again the same way because I'm, I'm deconstructing you know all of those different things and that's what they're telling stories and doing that so and well, that and you're providing the the next step of that learning curve it's one thing to see it it's another thing to mimic it or replicate it and then find your own style and, and this is the intermediate photo class that we're talking about this, doing this now. I'm also in the middle right now of an intro to photo class. And there we just completed this assignment where they had to use lighting really well, really pay attention to lighting. In fact, we had we watched an old movie called The Natural with Robert Redford, but we analyze, they have to write a paper and they have to analyze it for the lighting both in terms of the actual lighting from a technical standpoint, but also the metaphoral, metaphoric and, and symbolic use of lighting. And it's my favorite thing to hear and I hear it repeatedly so I think I kind of figured it down. A, they were just making their own lighting photographs and, and the students looking at these, he goes, boy, I thought what I did six weeks ago, boy, was it horrible. This is really good. And then the other thing I love to hear is when the students write this paper, say, well, thank you, Brian Poulter. You have ruined my ability to watch movies without thinking about it. I said, well, that's what education does is allows you to deconstruct things and figure out that the component parts sometimes are more than the sum you yeah. know, the whole. Yeah. Um, you also, I believe, mentioned in your article uh, posting to Facebook and having a Facebook group. Right. Uh, it's called Portrait EIU, and it's, it's, you know, anyone can find it. Sometimes we're really successful and sometimes we're not as successful, but it, it they know they're going to publish these and people are going to see them. And part of the fun is, as the, uh, whatever, owner of, of the group, we can see the statistics and we're like, 
why did this photograph get 16,000 hits? I mean, it's a nice photograph, but sometimes we can't figure it out. And then sometimes we're like, why isn't this photo getting more hit? And it, that's part of the process of trying to f figure out who you're talking to, audience analysis. You know, uh, as journalists, we do serve our public, and if our public isn't reading or looking at our content, then it doesn't matter how well written it is. We have to figure out how do we tell the important stuff they need to know, but also construct it in a narrative that makes them want to consume it, it makes it easy to consume. Right, and that's kind of an, a, another key piece in the learning is finding that authentic audience. One, you have an audience, a global audience. You know, say, oh, suddenly 16,000 people you know, if you, it's like that's if you're a student, it's like, wow, you know, this work matters. It's like I really do need to pay attention to that lighting or something. Or maybe it's being used as a bad example or something. Or, out there. or as teachers, we should be doing that, too. Why is this assignment working? I've had this experience. In fact, um, one of my colleagues asked me to write this paper about a year earlier. And I said, you know what? I don't have it figured out. It's doing OK, but it should be doing better. It took me about three semesters to really figure out how to get the students to ask the questions of his work and of their work. First time it was okay, second time that was better, but I was like, no, I still think it can be better. And the third time I sort of have it, and that's sort of my rule in teaching, by the way. It takes me three times oh, to least. get a class kind of down. Yeah. You, you mess with it the first time, second time you go, okay, it didn't work in one, you, you, you tinker it, and then three, you perfect it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one nice thing over the years with learning management systems or OneNote notebooks and things like that, having that historical record to go back. You know, there's the old adage in teaching, you know, did you teach one year 20 times or, you know, did you teach for 20 years and constantly improving? And I, I'm always going back and looking. The, one of the problems with teaching is typically we have a year cycle or, you know, a best six-month cycle before we're teaching the same course again. So that iteration is much more difficult to do spaced over time like that, but is something that uh, I certainly make a conscious effort, you know, to to improve uh, every time. And I I have, you know, like a one note notebook. I'll just write off to the side, you know, this worked really well, or it's like, well, this one bombed, and I need to readjust it. And what might not work in a class this time might work, you know, with with a different group, with a different culture in in the classroom and things. So there's just so many variables for teaching. Well, and the thing that comes to my mind is students are often afraid to not be wonderfully successful. And, or they have, a, I've had seen students where they have really good grades and they're like, yeah, I want to try that, but, you know, I might not be good at it. Ironically, I find that faculty sometimes do the same thing. Mm -hmm. They're like, well, I'm afraid of failure. Well, if you're afraid of failure, you're never going to succeed. And you're the one that said, you have to try this one note thing. I'm like, I don't want to. And you're like, I will not help you anymore and be your <laughs> friend anymore if you don't try this. And I said, okay. So I tried it. And it took me, you know, first time I was like, okay, this works. Second time I kind of think I figured it out. And now I'm like, okay, this is how I'm going to do it for my teaching method. Yeah. And it, it just, but, but without you pushing me saying, you're doing this, I probably wouldn't have done it. And this isn't true of all teachers, but I think it's true of the majority of teachers out there, that perfection complex or something like that. And that's hard to let go. I mean, I, I used to be much worse about that. It's like I kind of let things go. But as I said, I'm working on a project right now that I have a deadline. It's due like tomorrow. And there's just one small minor wrinkle in this little process that I'm doing it happens to be a video. And it's like, I could probably live with that and probably nine out of 10 people wouldn't see it, but I see it. And it's like, 
uh, it's probably going to take me a couple hours to fix, but this might be a video that a thousand people might see. So well, I, like, and, I, and I feel like breaking into let it go from frozen on your behalf to say, <laughs> let it go. This is, you know, you can, this is going to have a huge impact, but I know what you're saying. And I find myself actually saying that again to students. So I have to teach everybody in journalism photography. And some people just come to me and say, I'm going to be horrible at this. And I said, yes, you are with that attitude. Yeah. I, sa I said, my job is to figure out where you are and here's perfection and we're never gonna get there. Right. But we can get halfway there. And then after that, we can get halfway closer. That's what idealism is. You're never gonna get there, but you can always get a little bit closer. And I said, as long as you're willing to try to get a little bit closer, we're gonna do just right. fine. And as soon as you get halfway there, it's twice as far away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <That's, laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to life. But uh, yeah, uh, so, you know, there's just so many, you know, these project-based learning situations and things, those are life skills uh, too. And our students don't often see them. It's like, you know, why am I gotta do, I've gotta do this picture, you know, that's their assignment in their head. And it's like, no, you're managing this project. You've gotta go out, you've gotta establish a relationship with an individual in a very short amount of time. Those are the skills that you're, you know, trying to impart. Uh, up on those students and those are life skills uh, mastering those life skills here you can I'm sure we've all uh, maybe in the university setting had professors who were brilliant but just couldn't communicate their ideas very mm -hmm. well and that's just a tragedy yeah that they haven't figured out a methodology to do that but again if I can emphasize that whatever you're teaching go on the internet you can find something related to that that, that maybe it's only three minutes of your class but you can relate you, what you're teaching to the real world and I just think it has such a, a bigger impact because students see it as being re relevant rather than just something they have to uh, survive yeah okay all right well let's go ahead and wrap up this any last thoughts on the, the it's called the stranger teaching my class it's it's pretty short it's pretty readable um, one of the thing I'm happy about my department at our university, East Illinois University, is they really love it when you do research that you can relate directly to your own classes. Action-based research, yeah. And I think it's pretty re readable. Um, it's not long. If you take a look at it, it might give you some ideas. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Sure, no problem. technology pick this week is the Microsoft Whiteboard app. This is a new app that uh, Microsoft's been working on and this is uh, for presenting live content whether you're in the same place or a completely different location. So it's kind of uh, the concept of a whiteboard and doing brainstorming uh, but one of the unique features of this is whenever you load the app and you share a link with somebody could be in the same room could be somebody on the other side of the world but it is very responsive and whenever you write something on the whiteboard if say a person in Europe is uh, also using the app they immediately see it so very very little delay low latency in doing this and this has kind of been one of the uh, one of the pieces that's missing in OneNote in that it's not, uh, you know, OneNote has a lot of latency as far as, you know, if I was if I were communicating with somebody a thousand miles away, this one is nearly instantaneous. So uh, this is just a, a brainstorming app. Uh, it's available. I've been playing with it with uh, my Windows 10 desktop and my Surface Pro Windows 10. It works very, very well, as, as I said, kind of immediate. So for those brainstorming sessions, or we're doing a lot of Skype, you know, two-way type 
Skype conversations. So you can be on a Skype call in a video call, and essentially it's like you're writing on the same whiteboard in the same room. So a lot of you know some a lot of potential out there for some of the brainstorming type activities. They just did come out with the iOS app preview. I haven't done anything with that one yet. I might share that link with you, Brian. I think you have an iPhone. Cool. Uh, might be able to go out there, and we can kind of you know at the same time. Uh, do this it's it, you can add sticky notes uh, of course it supports digital inking so freehand digital inking text uh, and you can move things around stack some different things but it's kind of one of those messy areas which again is kind of why i like it because you can just throw ideas out there and you know in a brainstorming session you know every idea is a good idea so just throw it out there and then come back later and uh, organize it and you know in either in one note or if you're making a presentation or a word document uh, just to kind of throw those out there. So I'll, I'll provide a link out in the show notes and I'll see if I can find a video uh, of some demonstrations. But it's really cool because whenever somebody's writing on the board, you'll see a little icon of their picture next to their inking. And so that way you know who's contributing to what. And I, I don't know how many you can go up to. I'm sure you can go like at least 10 different people uh, out there. So the Microsoft Whiteboard app. Very cool. All right. What's your pick, Brian? Um, well, I'm, I'm referencing the Stone Age of June 30th, 2016, episode 190 of this very podcast, when we did a podcast about, again, bringing technology from the and things from the outside into the classroom. We were talking about personal weather stations and all oh, the remember. data and mapping and, you know, tons of ways. Data, we, mathematics, science, all kinds of different things. So I've been playing with these forever, and Ambient Weather, that's a company that puts out a lot of uh, neat tools out for this stuff. Just came out with a new personal weather station, the WS2902A. Why can't you come up with a better name than that? <laughs> Sony does the same thing too. It's actually called the Offspray, but it's a weather station. What I like about it is, first of all, it's $152.99. Um, I think it's like 160 on Amazon with the shipping. It's probably cheaper to buy it through Amazon. Now, is, is this the same company where your previous weather station? It was, it was. Okay. Um, and they have really dedicated themselves to getting out. You know, it used to be a weather station of this quality would cost a thousand dollars, and so you know it's UV light quality, humidity barometers, uh, aerometer, uh, wind speed, everything you're going to want, and you could and you can integrate it to any number of different ways of getting the data. Weather underground, they have their own app personal weather stations. So there's all kinds of ways you can access this data. And, and I've even seen a number of schools will put these up at their school because you want to make the school sort of the hub of the community. And so they just know they have great weather there. And then a lot of the, at least in this area, TV stations will reference their right. weather from there because they want to establish a relationship with these communities. And people will even set up little um, tower camps so you can see their football field or their yeah. whatever. So what it does is it sends a radio signal to the little data box where it gives the readout, and then that by Wi-Fi sends the data out to the internet. You don't have to send the data out to the internet if you don't want to share, but sharing is pretty good. And because there's different standards in the United States and various other places, I know you have a lot of log listeners all over. I looked it up. I can find it at instrumentchoice.com AU in Australia, and it's just called something else. They call it the ICO348 or the XCO 703, and I can find it in Europe as the LTEC or LALECTO, L-A-L-E-C-T-O, WS5500. And it's it's just the same thing. It's just 
they use different frequencies and, and mm-hmm. different things. So it, it's a really relatively easy to set up instrument and it, it's pretty easy to use. You just have to mount it on a pole somewhere on top yeah. of your school or on a fence or something. Yeah, and it's so easy to do. It just takes a little bit of extra effort out there. But again, I can imagine one of the things that I kind of pride myself on is taking any type of you know real world, real world data out there and applying it into whatever subject area it is. And this cross curricular, mm-hmm. you know, um, geology. Yeah, just so many different math, so physics. many so many different things that you that you can do with that. And then, again, getting the buy-in and getting the, the pride, the school pride you mentioned, uh, and, and working with that. And I just, I just see so many, so many applications to, to, uh, to go out there. And then historical record. And then, again, real world, people realizing that weather is very variable, if I can say that, mm-hmm. uh, from location to location, even 10 miles away. You know, and and farmers know this from Illinois. It's like we're we're constantly go to the coffee shop. Well, how much rain did you get? How much rain did you get? Well, I got an inch. Well, I got three inches. It's like, well, how did you know? How did how did that happen? You know, and, and just a matter of miles, and it, it just shows you the variability. On the other hand, maybe we, we should just ignore all this. The weather doesn't affect anybody in any way, shape, or form. There's nothing to be learned here. For for hundred and sixty dollars and then you i bought a pole mount i think for 20 for for under 200 dollars i have a weather station that 10 years ago would have cost me thousands and thousands of dollars and i and i couldn't have shared that data with anyone yes just a great way to jumpstart some curricula okay well we'll provide a link out in the show notes thank you very much that wraps it up for episode 217 of tech talk for teachers Show notes for this episode and archived episodes are available on the web at the EIU Instructional Technology Center website at eiu.edu slash ITC. Until next time, this is Tom Grissom. And I'm Brian Poulter. Keep Keep on on learning. learning.